This is Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. It's powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To start your free 14-day trial, visit shopify.com. Hey, entrepreneurs, my name is Felix, and I'm the host of the Shopify Masters podcast. Each week, we put out podcast interviews with successful e-commerce entrepreneurs or experts to give you inspiration, motivation, and actionable tips to increase your traffic and sales so your store can generate the sales you need to live the life you want. On today's podcast, we learn from an entrepreneur that's launched six Kickstarter campaigns and plans on launching two more this year. In this episode, you'll learn the marketing channels they utilize when they launch the Kickstarter campaign and how they used PPC during a Kickstarter campaign, how they transitioned the traffic and buzz from Kickstarter to their Shopify store, and what benefits they found from creating a business plan and updating it regularly. Today, I'm joined by Kyle Hart from RhinoCameraGear.com. Rhino sells DSLR, cinema, and GoPro camera gear built to last with a lifetime warranty and was started in 2011 and based out of Seattle, Washington. Welcome, Kyle. Hey, thanks, Felix. So tell us a little bit more about your story and what are some of the most popular products that you sell? Okay. So we make filmmaking accessories. It's a, it's a pretty niche business, um, but we say that we, we help filmmakers tell better stories and we do that by allowing them to move their camera more creatively. So, um, for example, if you've ever seen the behind the scenes of a Hollywood movie, you'll often see a big dolly track, almost looks like mm-hmm. a little miniature train track. And you have a guy sitting on top of it with a big camera and another guy pushing it. And so we looked at that and we looked at cameras getting a lot smaller um, and entered the market with a, well, this is actually our second product, but it was, this is what we're most known for is our camera slider called the Rhino slider. And so it's a, basically a miniaturized dolly that you can use with DSLR or mirrorless cameras. And it's, it's pretty basic. It, it allows you to push your camera left to right very smoothly. Uh, but if you look at any kind of, of movie, that allows you to tell a more creative story uh, much, much easier. So you'd mount this thing on a tripod or sit it on a table. And um, that's really where the company started uh, was with camera sliders and camera stabilizers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cool. So we'll definitely get into the story of uh, your launch there because we were saying For off sure. there about how you have so much experience with Kickstarter. So before we get there, tell us a little bit about your background. How did you get into creating and selling the camera gear? Yeah, I, I kind of stumbled upon it, honestly. Um, so I, I, going back a ways, I graduated from Washington State University with a degree in business entrepreneurship, which honestly, the only thing I learned to do from that was to write a business plan. Yeah. But then when I started the company, I was, I was too arrogant to actually write a business plan. So I, I think a lot of your listeners uh, will relate. You kind of learn mm-hmm. by experience. And I feel like that's, that's really been my story. So after college, though, I came back and started, um, I was doing a sales job in insurance sales and got pretty bored of that. And so I did a lot of outdoor sports, uh, started making some GoPro reviews of some outerwear, like some Gore-Tex jackets. And um, the company that I did the reviews for asked me, hey, Kyle, do you make any corporate videos? And at the time, I only had a GoPro. And so... Um, I basically said, yes, of course, I make corporate videos. And um, got the contract and then went out and bought a ton of DSLR gear. Um, I had about two weeks to figure out how to use, I bought a Canon 60D and some lenses and some lights and 
it was a mess, but uh, they liked the videos. Uh, they flew me out to Colorado and shot the videos and edited them, and that's where everything started. Um, and so what really gave me the passion to keep going in that was a, uh, a trip back on Mount Rainier up in, up in Washington. Um, I was coming down from, uh, we, we, we didn't summit that day, uh, but we came down from about 11,000 feet and the view was, was gorgeous. It's, it's one of my most memorable moments. And at that time I decided that, hey, I want to be able to capture this story in this moment in a more creative way. And so... That combined with the gear that I had, um, I started filmmaking on the side and then realized uh, gear is way too expensive, way too big, way too heavy, it's way too hard to use, I'm just a beginner. Um, and so that started the whole concept of Rhino, which we make very high quality, very intuitive gear. Um, we don't market it as affordable, but uh, the price is typically not a barrier for our professional customers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so one thing you said in there that I think is uh, I definitely want to touch a little bit on is that you said yes to doing this this corporate uh, video project even before mm -hmm. you felt like you were ready. And I think that's a similar situation that a lot of entrepreneurs are at where they always feel like they're not ready to do something. And sometimes, you know, you either get held back by that and not end up doing and just kind of, you know, sure, step sure. back. But then, you you know, you went ahead and did. And I think some entrepreneurs can relate to that. So you can tell us a little bit more about that experience. Like, you know, how did you know to say yes, even though you didn't feel ready? I don't think you felt ready, at least. And, um, you know, what, what did it feel like when you were going through it? Yeah, yeah. So I, I've never been afraid to to step into a new opportunity um that's that's something i credit to my my dad and my mom and how they they raised us is that we we always just wanted to go for it and kind of live in the moment and i've always been a big risk taker so um i mean i, I would encourage others to uh, i've always felt even i even now in, in our business that there's always the next step that we're trying to get to the next level you know the next stage in the business um, and you're not going to get there unless you, you kind of put yourself out there and, and start, start executing really, you know, uh, you can have a dream, but you're never going to reach that dream unless you just start, you know, make a simple plan of, of the steps of how it's going to take to get to the dream and then start, start making decisions, start executing. And so I think that was the biggest moment. And I actually didn't even have the contract I don't even think I had a contract with that filmmaking gig. Mm -hmm. I basically bought the money. I say I got the contract. That was me just being optimistic. I basically flew out there and bought everything and hoped that I got paid in the end. Yeah. Um, and it ended up working out well, but my wife was, was less optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> Has it ever uh, backfired on you, like this kind of approach? Because you know, I think when you take this approach, you can definitely move a lot faster and take these risks like you're saying and take these opportunities but I could imagine that you could be out and out there and basically naked and and not know what what to do when it could backfire so has it ever happened to you before it, it has a little bit so on our third Kickstarter campaign it was called rhino battery holsters I was very young and very dumb and had some success in the beginning with Kickstarter and so I, I thought that everything I touched would turn to gold mm -hmm. and I thought all of my ideas were just awesome. <laughs> And so uh, the battery holsters was a, a small little, I mean, I, I used to shoot competitively with a pistol and you have something called a double mag, mag holster that goes on your side and you just put your, your gun magazines so you can reload fast. And so as a filmmaker, you're always switching out batteries and you're always switching out memory cards. And so I thought, 
hey, if I can put my batteries in, like I could put my gun magazines in, um, that would be a cool product. And so I didn't do any any market research or even ask anyone if they thought it was a good idea. I basically said, hey, let's design it. Let's spend $15,000 on the plastic injection mold tool for it. And let's just go for it on Kickstarter and we're going to sell thousands of them. Um, and that was our only failed project, which was really good for me because it it kind of woke me up to, hey, not everything you're going to do is going to succeed. You got to put some more time on the front end to make sure that this is something that people want. Uh, so at the end of the day, we were competing with people's pockets. Mm. And <laughs> it's a lot uh, lot easier and a lot cheaper than paying, paying 25 bucks for a piece of plastic. So Yeah. So let's let's touch on this. Let's go into the Kickstarter campaign. Sure. So you you know, you said that this that was your third one, and I'm looking at your profile on Kickstarter now. You've had six campaigns total. Um so what so it looks like there's a middle ground here, right? Where you have to definitely take those steps and jump in, even though when yes. you don't feel like you're ready, but then also this is the other end of the spectrum where it doesn't work out. So mm. what do you think you should what do you think what steps do you think you missed this time around that you should have taken uh, to make sure that your Kickstarter campaign would you know would actually launch successfully? Yeah, yeah. Um, do you mind? Is it okay if I back up a little bit and go over our first campaign, how that came about? Because that, that yeah. kind of leads into sure. into the other ones. So the, the first one, we had the idea of um, a compact and easy to balance camera stabilizer, and that was what we called the Rhino Steady or the Easy Steady back in the day. And that was our first product that we'd ever tried to design. We had no idea about materials or machining or manufacturing. So that was a huge learning curve. Um, but I ended up seeing this guy named Peter Deering. He's the owner of Peak Design. And they've raised uh, close to, I think, $7 million on Kickstarter over four or five campaigns. Um, and so he was starting at the same time I was. And had a, he had an idea... I basically didn't know who this guy was, but I was at a camera store in Olympia, south of Seattle, and I met him there, and he was trying to sell his little capture clip system that was a quick release for your camera that attached to a belt or attached to a backpack strap, and uh, none of the camera stores would carry his product. He was trying to go the the very um, normal approach of trying to get it into stores first. Mm-hmm. So he went to Kickstarter and raised 360 something thousand dollars for it. And so that's what that's how I decided to jump onto the Kickstarter bandwagon was hey, if he raised 300 grand for this thing, maybe I have a chance. Um, but I actually had the idea for the slider before the the stabilizer was even launched on Kickstarter and basically decided not to do the Kickstarter campaign for the stabilizer. Um, but then I was afraid that it wasn't going to work, that people wouldn't buy it, basically just paralyzed by that fear of launching. Mm-hmm. But my, my, best, my best friend and my wife basically said, get that thing on there. Like You've burnt through our entire savings. Uh, we don't have any money to pay off our credit card. Like <laughs> you, uh, you launched that campaign. And so that was really helpful just to have the support of them. So again, I mean, it's... It's been it's been cool. We've we've been really blessed to have that success on Kickstarter because we haven't done a ton of market research. We've really just trying to solve our own problems and then see if other people respond. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the case of the battery holster, we solved my problem, but it didn't happen to be a mass market problem. Um, so I think we could have kind of go back, circle back to your question, 
I think you just have to put a little bit of a little bit more on the front end of if it's a product that that people can't put down when when you're showing it to them, it's it's probably a, a solid idea to move forward with. Mm-hmm. So is your approach now to create these prototypes and then actually get in front of potential customers in person? Like how do you do this market research that you're talking about to make sure that it's not only your problem, but it's actually like a mass market problem? So there, there's a balance. Uh, we definitely look at where the market's at. So if we take our our latest Kickstarter campaign, which was about a year ago, we we looked at our, our current generation of sliders, which you just push with your hand left and right, and they were good, uh, but you couldn't do time lapses with them. Uh, you couldn't do complex moves or repeatable moves for motion uh, for um, compositing, and so we looked at what was on the market and. All of it had to be powered with external batteries. You had to use different motors for different speeds. Uh, it was really bulky and really heavy. And so with that, we didn't do a ton of market research. We, we basically looked at the market and we said, we could make this way better than what's out there. Um, and then priced it really competitively so that people who haven't purchased a motion control system would, would purchase ours. So it, it, it's definitely a balance of you have... Really, before you go after features, you, you tell a story of what it looks like for somebody to use the product. And if people can buy into that, that new way of using it, um, it's, it, it's hard. I'm, I guess I'm not really giving a straight well, answer. It, so, it sounds like you're looking at existing. You want to make sure that there's already a product out there that is similar or that you can improve on rather than creating something that didn't exist at all. Like going back to your your holster example, I don't I mean I'm not too familiar with this industry, but it sounded like that was something completely new that no one really ever had this before. And like you're saying, you're competing against people with just having pockets. And that's, you know, it's it's um, not a, a, a great place to compete when so that pockets are everywhere, right? So um, it sounds like, yeah, you, you find a product that already exists and that you can improve upon or that you can create something that's similar to it that solves the same exact problem that that product solves. And you, do, do you like send out surveys? Like, How do you actually survey the marketplace to see if your story, like you're saying, or your idea for a product actually could sell? Uh, we didn't really do any surveys. We we definitely showed a lot of our filmmaking friends the product. Um, the the biggest thing that that validated the idea was uh, we had a prototype of it, and I had a friend who basically vowed against ever using any motion control system because he didn't want to rely on batteries. He's just kind of anti technology, um, and we hired him to create our video for us. And he ended up falling in love with it and never took off the motion control module off of the slider. He always used the slider with the electronic motion control. And so that was a huge validation of somebody who basically swore against using this Mm. kind of product and fell in love with it and realized it was an essential piece to his kit that he'd just never take off. Uh, That was really strong early validation. That's interesting. Yeah, maybe if you cannot, maybe the, the lesson here is that you cannot reach a lot of people, you can't reach a lot of people to get their feedback. You find specific smaller groups of people or maybe just individuals that are, 
either very against the, this, your particular product or never even considered it or you know are perfectly fine with having the problem. And if you put it in front of them and you can convince the, the hardest to convince customers, then it might might mean that you could also convince the much, much larger market that is going to be easier to convince. So, I mean, that's what it sounds like the approach that, that worked for you for validation, at least. Definitely, definitely. There's a, there's a, there's a whole line of thinking called Lean Startup, uh, which I'd recommend a lot of people to look into. Um, I forget the actual author of the book. Um, it's escaping me right now. But it, you basically innovate very quickly and you, you get your product in front of users and you watch them using it. You don't really ask them. You can't ask them questions, but you, you basically iterate very quickly. And it's harder to do that as a larger company, but if you're just starting out and you haven't quite developed a product yet and you're wondering this kind of market research questions, um, the lean startup methodology is, is very helpful for that. Yeah, I would agree with that for sure, 100%, that you can't really trust what people say uh, because not because they're lying to you, but because they sometimes don't know themselves well enough and they might think that they're making a specific purchase for a specific reason, but they might they just might, might just not know. But if you follow their behaviors, and like the behaviors don't lie, you know, especially their purchasing behaviors. Uh, so cool. So I want to go back before we uh, continue this Kickstarter thing. You were mentioning a couple of things that I want to touch on before we move too far away, which is that in 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 college, you're saying that the only thing you learned to do was create business plans, and you found you know since then that it's better to learn by experience. Do you ever think that there is a point in going through the exercise of creating a business plan? Definitely, definitely. So I'm not saying that, that it was a good thing that I didn't write a business plan in the beginning. <laughs> um, so we, we have written several business plans. The hard part with a business plan is that usually it's a static document that you write at once and you never edit it. Mm-hmm. If you look, especially with the lean startup methodology, uh, We've pivoted so many times in our business, I, we don't even recognize them as pivots anymore. It's just doing business. Right. Um, and a pivot is the saying that you have an assumption and you test it, and maybe your assumption is wrong and you have to pivot and operate you know, your product line or the way you're marketing or anything off a different assumption until it's proven and, and tested and it actually works. And so I think if you do write a business plan, it really helps you dial in, hey, who, who is our target customer? Let's write a story about our customer using our product, what they're doing, what they're wearing, what they drive, who their friends are. And you, you get a really good idea of, of, then you ask, you know, where are these people hanging out at as far as the web and blogs and where do we market and all of that. Um, so it definitely helps you process through a lot of those questions where you might just be fine by the seat of your pants if you don't. Um, so as long as it's a dynamic working document that you're constantly pivoting on and constantly updating, uh, I think business plans are, are awesome for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it sounds like there are two main questions that you make sure to answer in your business plan, maybe each time, maybe when you create it for the first time and when you re- revisit it, which is who is your target customer and get as detailed as possible. And I've seen some some businesses or some uh, some businesses even get to the point where they create like a like a 
actual image of the target customer and then be able to look at that particular person each day just to remind them who their customer is because that influences so many things, not just where you can reach them, but then how can you, how should you speak to them and, you know, what other, um, but then you also, the second thing was uh, finding out where they hang out online. There's this whole concept of watering holes where there are communities online where specific, your customers and your target customers are hanging out at, and those are your marketing channels. You focus your energy on reaching them through those those channels. So those are the two main things that it sounds like you answering your business plan. I do, I totally agree that you should have that nailed down. And it doesn't, you know, when we think of business plans, we think like, you know, 30, 40, 50 page documents, but it doesn't have to get that complicated. You know? No, no, yeah. it, it doesn't. You know, you can just, I just do bullet points. You know, yeah. I, I just kind of, <laughs> we uh, just brainstorm and puke on a piece of paper basically and just throw out all of our ideas and organize them. Um, we, we do the same thing with how we market. So we have a, a Kickstarter campaign coming up on April, uh, early April. And when we're writing all of our copy for the product pages and for the Kickstarter uh, actual product page and for the script for the video, I um, mean, the first two questions we ask are like, who is our customer? And then we, we do the same kind of exercise. We say, okay, here's our customer. Here's the pain point that we're solving. And now, we, now that we know what the pain points are, we know exactly how to market to them because we, we know what they feel, we can empathize, and then we can say, hey, here's, here's what we're doing. And not market in a salesy way, but market in a very organic way where we present the features as, as being solutions to problems. Mm-hmm. So that, how, that how often... Yeah, that, that definitely makes sense. So how often do you revisit your business plan these days? That's a good question. Um, honestly, not, not that much. We... We're fundraising um, to get some some money to grow the company from banks, and so we had to write a formal business plan for that, which was a great exercise. Uh, right now, we use a, a project management or product management system called Aha, A A Z A H A. It's kind of mm-hmm. a weird name, Aha.io. Yeah. And in that, they have some basically a SWOT analysis: your strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats. Uh, for every product or product line, we will go through and say, hey, this is how we're positioning it. Here's our competition. And so it's much more fluid now. Uh, it's not like an actual working document that we're changing all the time. But we are documenting our strategy and where we're positioning the company and the goals we have. And so it basically takes the elements of a business plan, but makes it more relevant because you're seeing them daily. Yeah, and I want to be care- careful here because um, there's this, obviously you're doing a lot of things that are now required because you, like you're saying, you're trying to fundraise and your company as a, is at a much more established phase where I think a lot of these documents come in hand. Do you recommend that people that are just starting out or maybe not even started yet but are thinking about starting a business, should they go through these exercises? Or when do you think it makes the most sense to start kind of formalizing these documents? I, I think so. That's one thing I've learned. I used to be a very, very disorganized person where I had a capacity to keep everything in my brain for a long time, mm-hmm. but that caused a lot of stress and anxiety because I'd be just holding on to it in my brain. Um, and then I read a, a book, uh, what was the book called? Um, the E-Myth. And the e- yeah, it's a great book. That, that kind of rocked my world of, um, my business was a hobby for a very long time. And so I think some of your listeners could could probably relate to that where it's it's so attached to them and that's what they do and it's their identity. But as soon as you break it apart from yourself and then you start creating systems for everything, uh, that allows you to scale really well. 
um, you're basically building a, a system yourself. And then as soon as you have the capital or you have the necessity to hire somebody else to take that system that you've already built, it's really easy to have a clear job description, you know, have clear requirements. Um, systems are huge if you actually want to grow a business. That's what I've learned. Uh, we call it SOPs or standard operating mm-hmm. procedures. There's just a, a reason and a, and a rhyme to everything that we do, and it helps us run very efficiently. So all those are documented. Awesome. Yeah, definitely want to touch on that a bit too. Um, so moving on real quick. So with the with the professional gear marketplace that you're going after, there's a lot of you know entrenched competition already, right? Again, when it comes to like uh, gears for for professionals, they demand high quality, and they you know obviously reputation matters a lot. But you're like the new you know person on the scene, especially when you first came out. Did you feel like, you know, I guess, how, what made you feel like you could step into this market and, you know, carve out your own piece of the pie? We, we, we didn't really. Um, we thought we had a good idea for a slider. The slider is really what put us on the map. Like I said in the beginning, we raised about a quarter of a million dollars for that in 2012. And that actually allowed us to have some capital to have a warehouse, um, to be able to manufacture in quantities where we can be competitive. And so, I mean, in the beginning, we were just we we're just trying to make good products. You know, I, I didn't. I was still working my sales job full time for about two years into this business, and so I had my backup plan where I had a good income, and this was more like I said, like like a hobby almost. Um, but then, like you said, you know, we, we started growing a brand and getting a reputation for hey, Rhino sliders are some of the best. Why would you buy brand X or brand Y? They're, yeah, they're established, but they're heavy and they're expensive. Why don't you check out Rhino? And that's really how we grew. We, didn't, we haven't done any advertising, really. Um, it's all by, by word of mouth and by having good products that kind of sell themselves. So I'd say just recently, we've taken the position and realized we're, we're doing really good. And we, we're getting a lot of market share on our competitors. Um, and so now we're really going after some more, you know, higher business goals of let's let's own this thing, let's own this market, let's invest in in new products and new development and and blow away the competition. Yeah, and just to kind of recap your experience so far and the the proof that that your products are in demand, I want to just kind of go over all the Kickstarter campaigns you've launched. Um, so you know, you launched uh, six in total. I was going to read through these. Uh, the You've raised uh, over four hundred thousand dollars for one campaign, over thirty thousand for another, one hundred seventeen thousand for another one, and the Rhino battery holster is the one that did not uh, get funded successfully, but you still reached about almost seven thousand dollars raised there, and then a quarter million for the Rhino slider, and then the last one here is almost eighty thousand dollars for the uh, stabilizer. So obviously a ton of success. Um, maybe we'll start with the the very first success story that you had with. Kickstarter. So when you first launched on Kickstarter, you you, you sounded like you had to to do it right because you didn't really have funds to to launch a business in any other way. Um, so how did you you know make sure this campaign was going to be a success? Because it sounded like your last option, right? Your last shot to try to make this a reality. So tell us a little bit about what kind of marketing went into promoting that first campaign. Yeah. So we we didn't have any guarantee that that was going to be a success. That was really a shot in the dark. Um, the marketing that we did. So we, like you said, you know, you, you need to find out where your customers' watering holes are. That was our sole strategy for that first campaign. Uh, we didn't have a brand. I mean, we had a blue rhino head as our logo. It was it was pretty ghetto. <laughs> um, 
and you know bright blue painted products. Um, it had no reputation, and so as soon as the product launch, my only strategy was to go to all the blogs in the industry, and there were probably maybe ten or fifteen somewhat relevant um, filmmaking or photo blogs, and I. I I was desperate, man. I, I basically emailed these guys daily until they blogged about us, you know, ba- basically offering to give them a free product. And that's pretty commonplace now where you say, hey, if you, um, I'll give you a $300 product if you blog about us. Um, I think that gets harder and harder nowadays because everyone's doing crowdfunding campaigns and mm-hmm. everybody wants their product shared. And so I think we hit the timing really well with that. Um, and then even offered to, I got so desperate where I was emailing, saying, trying to get creative when I wouldn't hear back and say, hey, you know, I'll fly out and buy you a beer. Uh, you know, let's go have a beer and I want to show you my product. I'll fly out to New York for a night. Uh, I never actually did. Nobody actually took me up on it, but they blogged about us. And so if you look at the ROI, you know, it's nice to have past Kickstarter campaigns where you say, hey, um, and Gadget or No Film School or CNET blogged about us and we got 60 pledges from that. You know, that might be $18,000 in sales. Mm-hmm. And so, Obviously, if you spend six hundred bucks on a plane ticket, it's uh, it's well worth the the investment. To um, I, I definitely would have done it. So that that was really the sole strategy was we need to get people talking about this, and then it kind of bubbles out from there. Uh, right. So is that yeah. the same strategy that you take today? Like you're saying that you have a campaign launching in April. Will you be uh, taking the same approach with like outreach to these bloggers, or do you have some other strategy? Um. So it's all. It's probably a three-part strategy. You have the, the blog strategy, which is, which is huge. You have to get people talking about your product, um, especially if you don't have a brand. If you don't get eyeballs on your page, you can't expect to be successful. Second part is that we, we have an established brand. We have a big email list. Uh, we have people that know about us that will just naturally share what we're doing. And that, that is so valuable. Um, so that helps a ton. And then we do a lot of we do a lot of actual pay-per-click advertising during campaigns where we're on, we're on Google. Um, we actually have an uh, advertising agency, that, not really an agency, it's actually a couple guys that have figured out how to target people who have backed Kickstarter campaigns in the past and then they only target those people for the advertisements. Um, they, they found that people who have backed a campaign before are something like 20 times more likely mm. to back than somebody who doesn't know about Kickstarter. Yeah, I've read, I've read that same thing and I've seen companies that are just have a huge mailing list or huge reach for people that have, specifically for people that have backed campaigns uh, for the same reason you're saying because the people that are on Kickstarter, they, you know, yeah, they, they're interested in the specific products they back but on top of that, like the, what ties them all together is that they're super like early adopters. They want to be the first ones on things. So even if, you know, you sell, you sell camera gear, they might buy something in the food industry that's totally, you know, different just because they want to be a first adopter, you know. So yeah, totally, totally agree with that point. So anyway, yeah, I didn't want to cut you off there. You're talking about the other the other strategies. So PPC was a big one that you mentioned, and I want to, you know, dive into to that uh, in a second. Before we get there, um, does your strategy change, you know, between the time, let's say you're fundraising and you're, you have a goal of, let's say, $100,000 and you're getting really close to it. Do you switch the gear into di- focusing on something differently? Like how do you kind of work these three different um, prongs out, like this, the blog and then your network and then PPC? Like when do you turn on these kind of um, strategies? 
Yeah, so we plan all of it in advance. So any ads we're going to run, any emails we're going to send out, uh, any content that we're going to launch. One, one thing about Kickstarter campaigns is the longer you run the campaign, the more money you're going to raise, typically. Um, but the campaigns lose steam in the middle of it and people get bored. You know, There's less urgency. And so we plan content releases throughout the campaign where we say, hey, here's a new video about this feature. Or, hey, have you thought about this? Or we introduce a new accessory, um, trying to keep it going. And so all of that is planned prior to the campaign. That wasn't always the case. Um, that's the case now just because it's at a much larger scale and we do it because we'll go crazy if we try to do it by the seat of our pants. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we can always adjust it. You know, We can adjust the pay-per-click and... Uh, the hard part with the campaign is we can't really see a specific ROI on pledges. And so we're kind of guessing um, based on how many people actually went to the site. Mm. So that, that's a little bit harder. Because normally we can see the ROI and we say, hey, it costs 40 bucks to get a sale. Um, that's a great ROI, you know, because our average order value is pretty high. Um, and it, we just keep throwing money at it and it's, it's positive. So, mm. so I'm assuming you probably warm up your, you know, your email list and your personal and professional network way before the launch, and then on launch day, that's when you make sure all the, or maybe around launch day, that's when you make sure all the blogs know about you and start covering it. And then are you running just are you running PPC throughout the entire campaign, or do you even run it beforehand, or how do, when does that get turned uh, on? We we don't run it beforehand. We're actually going to try something new this time. Um, we run it throughout the entire campaign to answer that question. But beforehand, we're going to try something called a thunderclap, which mm-hmm. have you heard of that before? Yeah, I've heard of it, but yeah, explain to okay. the audience. Um, so it's basically a, a pre launch where you get everyone excited. Say we're going to start teasing this thing in about three weeks, you know, two weeks before the campaign launches. And we tease it and we say, hey, everyone go to this page, which is called a thunderclap, that is basically a landing page for getting buzz going. And say, hey, if you sign up for a thunderclap, we'll we'll be giving away one of these units that we're we're selling on Kickstarter uh, the day before the Kickstarter launches. And the thunderclap basically allows people to—it's almost like a pledge, a Kickstarter pledge, where you say, hey, I'm giving you access to my social media accounts to post a pre-written, hey, Rhino just launched their new Rhino blank, what we're launching in a month. Um, uh, Go check it out. And that will post to all their social media channels that they allow. Um, and then that makes them part of the thunderclap. So they're saying, before we launch the campaign, we're going to support you. And it just gets a really with a, a campaign, you want so much buzz and so much, so many shares and just as much talk about the product mm, as you can. That early traction is like exactly. critical, yeah. right? It's, it's huge. It's huge. And so we're trying that new. I know Peak Design did that for their last. Uh, campaign. They raised five million dollars for their their bag, which blows blows my mind still. Um, so yeah, we're, we're kind of learning from them, and and we'll, we'll see how that works. Yeah, that's definitely a cool thing. I've seen it being used mostly for like book launches. It happens a lot, I think. But I guess it works for any kind of pre sale that uh, you want to get you excited on the day of launch. Um, so in terms of the the ads themselves for PPC, are you running on Facebook? Like, where are you? What platforms are you using to to run these ads? Yep, so we're running on Facebook, we're running on AdWords, um, we have another kind of Google ad campaign, we run multiple retargeting campaigns, that's just kind of normal, um, that's not anything in addition. Uh, now that Instagram has ads, we, we're going to be running on Instagram, 
um, really anything and everything. It's it's all hands on deck during Kickstarter campaigns um, to get as many backers as possible because it it the more money we raise allows us to make a better product, allows us to get costs down, allows us to just do a better job. So it's crucial that you you raise as much as you can in that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure if I've ever seen a, um, a an ad on Facebook or anywhere really that is uh, for pre-order, especially for on Kickstarter. Can you tell us a little bit about what goes into that kind of ad? Like, what are you? What does the copy say? And like, where does it actually take them? And because you know, when people see an ad, they usually, or at least for me, when I see an ad, I'd immediately think if I'm interested in this, I can click on it and then buy. It, then it shows up on my doorstep two days later. But for a pre-order, it's totally different expectation. So, can you tell us a little bit about how you kind of you know, design it maybe differently than if you were selling something that already uh, is available? Uh, so for Kickstarter campaign, we, we really try to emphasize the savings for the product. Um, you get the early adopters that don't really care about the savings, but somebody who doesn't quite know what Kickstarter is, if you say, hey, you save 200 bucks on Rhino blank. I almost just said what we're going to launch. I'm trying to keep it a secret. Um, pre-order now. You know, and so you might not get a click because you're paying for clicks. And so if somebody's turned off by the word pre-order, they might not click on it. Um, but they might be curious if they're going to save 200 bucks. Um, I'm sorry, did you say that you do? Uh, do, you, do you do mention that as a pre-order or not uh, in the ad? We do. Because okay. yes. you yep. don't want to waste the click on somebody that, exactly. that's not interested in a pre-order. Okay, makes sense. Exactly, yeah. So yeah, just trying to emphasize the savings of, of the product. And then we direct... The rule of thumb is you, you direct everyone to your Kickstarter page. You don't go to a landing page on your website. You go straight to the page. That's where everything goes. So that's where the thunderclap goes. That's where all of our ads land are on the Kickstarter page. Okay, awesome. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So is there a timing involved when you do a Kickstarter a crowdfunding campaign in general? Because you know, you're launching this one in April. I feel like... Um, well, maybe not all yours are launched in April, but yeah, you said you're launching one in April. Is it? Uh, is there a good time of the year to to launch a campaign? Good time of the the week? Like, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah. So, time of the year, we we typically avoid the winter months. Uh, we avoid pretty much anywhere between say November and March, if you will, probably December or November and and uh, February. Um, Mainly because you just have have the holiday season, and it's really easy to get mm. lost in the mix of Black Friday, and then you have everyone who's getting their credit card bills in January. But now people are getting their tax refunds. Um, the release date of the product will be close to summer, so you get them thinking, "Hey, I can shoot a wedding with this, cool." Um, and then summer is usually pretty awesome, and all all the way up until about September. So we're launching another Kickstarter campaign in September uh, of 2016. For another product, wow! And um, that one, we're trying really, really hard to. It'll be our first true mass market product. Which I can't say too much about, but it's our first truly mass market product. You know, five to ten thousand units. Um, or normally we're between you know five hundred and a thousand unit runs. And that one, we're trying to ship by Christmas. 
And so that, that will be the goal is saying, hey, pre-order now in September, get it before Christmas. Yeah, so I was going to ask you, I wrote this down in my notes to ask you if you feel like the reward from the Kickstarter campaigns was worth the effort. But I think I know the answer since you've done this six times already. Uh, but in that moment, you know, when you're doing all of this, it's not just, you know, you raise a bunch of money and then all of a sudden you have, you know, $100,000 in your bank account and you can sit back and relax. And there's obviously a ton of things that need to happen before, during, and after. Uh, have you ever considered doing it any other way than to launch uh, your products on Kickstarter or through crowdfunding? We we have so we um, this is an interesting story with our our last Kickstarter campaign. We had a product called Rhino Parallax, which was a mechanical bar that pans your camera as you slide. Um, and before the end of the campaign, one of our biggest competitors, probably our biggest competitor, wrote us a letter and said, "Hey." We just got issued a patent on this. You guys are infringing. And that was a huge, like, oh, crap. Like, what are we going to do moment? Um, you know, sat down, had a couple beers, and strategized. You know, like, w- what do we do? Are we actually infringing? And so we made a choice to, we thought we weren't infringing. We consulted our patent attorneys. Um, they said, hey, you probably have an out, but I'm not interested in legal battle- battles, especially being a young company. It'll be a waste of money and a waste mm-hmm. of time and energy. And so we ended up doing a, an electronic solution, which we did not launch on Kickstarter. And we launched it as a Black Friday deal where we gave people 50 bucks off. And then we, we do really well with bundles. And so we, we created two new bundles that included that new product. And that was not on Kickstarter. And we raised quite a bit in the first, like the first three days for that Black Friday sale. Uh, we would say it was a healthy Kickstarter campaign amount, um, close to what we've done before. And so, um, that was great validation that yes, we don't need Kickstarter. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I still love it. I still love the community. I still love the the transparency. Um, you get a lot of grace on Kickstarter, you know, when, when stuff falls through and you have a, a delay, um, as long as you're honest and you communicate well, right. which we've, we've, we've been up and down on. I mean, you get so entrenched in just trying to fix problems, you forget to talk to your backers. And so they, they see that as you're trying to hide information when really you're just trying to survive. So yeah, I think we could do it, but I think um, it's, a, it's a great way to show your, your reputation on there and uh, a great landing page of sorts. I mean, it costs you 5%, which is, I, I think it's worth it. Um, yeah, that's really the only downside is you're you're giving away five percent of your sales. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but then that exposure definitely uh, sounds like it's worth it. I think um, so. Yeah. Yeah, so. Speaking of that, other than the revenue that you can generate from these these uh, this crowdfunding or these this pre-selling that you're doing, can you quantify or maybe describe the the benefits that you get from the exposure momentum for your brand? Because every single time you launch one of these, I'm assuming you get some residual kind of bump in your other products or maybe just your brand recognition. Can you tell us a little bit about how it all plays into you know pushing the brand of uh, Rhino Camera Gear? Yeah, one of the biggest things we originally saw was the SEO from Kickstarter. Um, so the title of your product, of your campaign, your project is very, very important. Um, so we've learned to title our campaigns to really what we want our SEO to be in the future. So if it's Rhino Slider, which we, we screwed up on this for um, Rhino Motion, which was our motorized campaign, we call it Rhino Slider plus Rhino Motion. Nobody knows what that is. That's not descriptive at all. Mm. Um, and we found out that Google doesn't really treat the description nearly as, he- like it doesn't weigh it nearly as heavily as the title. 
And so we ended up changing the title to, you know, Rhino, what was it? Rhino Motion Motorized Camera Slider. And Motorized Camera Slider is our SEO keywords we're going after. Um, and we basically own both of those keywords. We own uh, Camera Slider and we own Motorized Camera Slider. If you search into Google, we're really close to the top. And so that's one benefit of it. Um, if you don't have an established website, I think it's just a great page that people can go to and see, especially if you're treating your backers well. You know, if you're updating them and you're saying, um, you know, you're addressing problems, uh, which we had some problems with some of our motors that we had to almost recall, where we said, hey, we screwed up. Um, we're going to give you guys some free motors. You just kind of develop a rapport where people can go back and say, hey, you guys actually communicate well and you treat your guys well and you're, you're making sure that you're supporting your backers well. Um, that's really valuable, almost more valuable than, than SEO. So it, it gives you credibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. Cool. So yeah, so let's uh, talk about how Shopify ties into all of this. So yeah, you're right. All of these, a little uh, bit of a rabbit trail. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, your success definitely seems to really kick off from Kickstarter. You know, no pun intended. So, um, what is the? How does Shopify uh, kind of tie into all of these campaigns like that you're launching? How do you bring the traffic back to your site and just yeah, give us an idea of how your entire kind of marketing your system all connects together? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in relation to the campaigns, during the campaign, we send everything to the Kickstarter campaign. As soon as it ends, we send everything to the basically the same product page that we design on our Shopify store. Mm. And then all I mean we typically don't run ads for pre-order products. We haven't seen great conversion rate for that. So we kind of stop some of the ads. But then you still get the the SEO bump from Kickstarter and people are looking for a, a slider and they find our Kickstarter page and then they go to our, our landing uh, page which is just our product page on our Shopify store. And so Shopify, we, we launched with it almost a year ago, maybe a little bit less than a year ago. We were on, I believe, Magento before that. We've always done all of our own web development custom. Like I, I did it originally on, uh, what was it, OS Cart or some, some platform. Uh, OpenCart, I believe, was our very first solution. And then we jumped to Magento. And then it was just a mess. <laughs> It, Magento is great, it's customizable, but it's just a big beast that uh, didn't really have the integrations that we wanted in it. And it would break often, you know, once the version updated. And so we looked at Shopify and we talked to our developer about it. And it's, it's different to develop for it. Um, as you know, it's, you, know you, you don't have access to the root HTML public uh, file folders. And so you have to build apps, essentially, that integrate with it and connect to it. Mm-hmm. But as a platform, it's been so stable. Um, it's probably one of, been one of our biggest and best decisions. Um, and it, it's gone down maybe twice in the past year, but for 15 minutes, you know, um, which is, I think that's completely acceptable. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it's nice knowing that, hey, we have all these sales coming through this channel. I can trust it. And I know it's not going to break when a new version releases and it integrates super well with um, with a lot of apps, which we can get to because uh, we use a ton yeah. of apps on there. Let's talk about yeah. that. Which apps do you guys uh, depend on to run the business? Yeah, so the report feature is is super super nice. Looking at conversion rates and funnels during the shopping cart process. Um, so I think just the basic Shopify features, uh, reporting features in it are are really strong. Uh, we've gone with Clavio for email marketing, which really helps show our like the effort that we put into our email marketing. 
which we're, we're growing in. We don't do a ton right now, but that's one of our business goals is to grow on that. Uh, but we're able to see ROIs. So uh, when we launched that product, Rhino Arc, that I was talking about, that motorized panning system, uh, every email we sent out, we're like, hey, we made 20 grand off that email. That's amazing. You know? yeah. So it's, it was great to see the ROI with that. Um, back in the day, we used to focus a bit on GoPro accessories. And we thought, hey, we'll be a GoPro reseller and we'll basically give away our products, like bundle them with GoPro accessories to try to sell GoPros as a business model. We didn't have any fraud prevention back then. And we probably lost about $20,000 by sending out GoPros to people that we thought were legitimate customers, mm. but they were using stolen credit cards. And so we got chargebacks on all the GoPros that we sold. Wow. And so after that, obviously, we looked into that and we found Signified, <clears throat> which Signified will basically give you a score. They pull up as much information as they can on the customer, including social media profiles. Um, I don't know how they get all their information. It's pretty crazy. Uh, and they'll basically say, hey, this is a good guy. To, that you know, It's probably a green light. Or here's an orange or a red. And then they give you the option to pay to guarantee it. So we'll do that with some of the lower scores, like a 300 score out of 1,000. We'll say, hey, um, Signify, we would like to ship to this customer, but would you guarantee this for us? And if they guarantee it, they take a couple percent um, just to, to bear that risk. But that's mm-hmm. been huge. Just to, We don't have to worry about fraud prevention anymore. Uh, Yotpo for reviews is awesome. Um, they send automated emails after the customer receives the product to review it, which we've had great success with that. Uh, we use Refersion for uh, referral tracking, which that's something that we're going to integrate with our email marketing, where we, we just send a couple emails post-purchase, uh, you know, about a week spacing between. And we say, hey, if you love Rhino, um, you, can, you can get 20% back in-store credit if somebody uses your link to buy a product. And uh, that's been great because we get people just promoting the brand like crazy. Uh, Aftership for tracking, which is which is great, just letting people see where their product is, which is a, a huge service. Uh, got a couple more Gleam for competitions. Uh, we recently ran a competition on our site that we we gave away our product and we gave away a complimentary product from a different brand. And we got over 16,000 entries in, a, I think, a three-week period. Was that like a co-promotion thing where the other brand mm-hmm. also promoted? Yep. yep, and that worked really well. We got over 2,000 or 3,000 new emails. So we basically shared customer lists, if you will, by yeah. giving away our products. And that, that worked awesome. Um, and then our, our web developer called Helium Dev um, has done a lot of custom apps for us. Um, anything because our, our, if you look at our Shopify store, especially if you look at the the theme that we've built on the back end, it's very 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 customized. And so Helium Dev has been crucial for us to be able to um, really have any functionality we want. Um, uh, they've been a great team that's that's helped us do that. Yeah. So speaking of uh, you know your team, you were saying earlier about how it's so important for you, or at least for your business, it became really important for you to create these systems because once you created them, you can hire people to take them over. So tell us a little bit about you know your team and how it's all set up and like the, the, these kind of you know systems that you have set up. Sure, sure. So it it has not always been that way. Uh, like I said before, I was very disorganized. In the beginning, I was, I was doing everything. So I did the product development. 
I did the purchase orders, I did the assembly, the shipping, uh, the website, really everything. Um, the first people we hired w- were people to actually help assemble the product. Um, and so we didn't really have a great system then. My, my brother-in-law is actually our CPO, our chief production officer. And so he's created a lot of systems for us to, hey, how do we assemble gear faster? How do we ship gear faster? Um, so that's been, been really nice. He's taken the lead on a lot of that. Um, and then the additional guys that came out of the team were um, a part-time marketing guy and a part-time photography guy that helped us with some of our content. Um, and back then, we didn't really have any systems at all. Um, they left about a year ago and started their own company. And then about, what was it? Was it about a year and a half ago, two years ago, we hired our first real um, tech employee, an electrical engineer. And he helped us. He basically built the whole motion control system that's really growing our company uh, today. And so I did most of the design for that. He did the electrical. And I think at that point, we had hired a support person um, to actually start um, getting back to the emails faster and just having a better social presence. So that's Thomas, our community manager, and he's with us still. He's he's awesome. Uh, we're actually needing to hire another support person to kind of take more more load off his work. So it's um, you probably see a pattern where it's kind of we, we hire as needed, we hire mm-hmm. as we grow. Um, but we've really started scaling in the past year, where we've hired uh, we have two app developers on staff. Um, we hired another firmware engineer for some future product that we're developing and we hired a dedicated UI UX design person who's designing the website and designing the uh, the iPhone applications we're launching uh, later this year Um, hiring our first uh, actual salesperson to start reaching out to dealers to get more dealer sales so it's it's been a very organic kind of as needed you know as we're (laughs) we're stressed out and there's like visible discomfort with the, the workload people have. We're like, all right, all right, it's time to hire somebody new. Um, but we've never, it's kept us lean, uh, which is which is very important. Mm, yeah, that makes a lot of sense where you don't, well, maybe it makes sense, but it's definitely stressful where you don't hire until you just can't take it anymore and then you look for some help. But yeah, sometimes it's the only way to do it to stay lean like you're saying. We're trying to project more. You know, Now we have a better idea of, hey, when we go to this scale, we need another app developer will need another electrical engineer. So it's, it's less chaotic at this point, I hope. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. So cool. You know, Thanks so much for coming on, Kyle. So you said that you have two Kickstarter campaigns launching this year, one in April, one in September. Um, any other plans for the remainder of this year? Like, What are some of the big goals that you want to hit? That's a great question. Um, really, we're trying to get more people to know about Rhino. So people that know about it, love it, and share it. But we're trying to, to increase our brand uh, recognition, which we're really doing that by um, getting products into stores. So that's that's a new uh, it's a new revenue stream for us or a different sales channel. And so just reaching out to tons of different camera stores, and they're actually reaching out to us a lot, uh, wanting to carry and stock the product. And so that's that's probably our biggest goal besides uh, launching new and, and great products. Is just we want more people to know about Rhino. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, so, you know, based on all the things you've done, you know, it sounds like you've been in business for coming up on your, what is it now? Fifth year? 
I think we're on, yeah, we're on our sixth year now. Sixth year, you know, six Kickstarter campaigns. How successful is a business today? You know, share whatever you're comfortable sharing. Sure. Yeah. So we're, we're running multiple millions of dollars a year through Shopify now. Um, that was not always the case. We, we've tripled since last year, about this time. Uh, really, the new electronic motion control system has driven all those sales. Uh, and we're actually projecting to double or triple again this year, um, just from new dealer sales and then projecting the, the sales from the, the two new projects we're doing this year. And so it's, we're really reaching a, almost a tipping point of, of growth where um, it's going to exponentially grow from here on out, at least to a certain point as we, as we mature as a company. So um, we have about 45,000 people coming to the site a month um, and a, a decent conversion rate. I mean, you're always, you're always looking to boost your conversion rate. Um, so our, our UI UX guy is always looking at comparing mobile to desktop numbers and just trying to create a better experience for customers. And, and that always affects the conversion rate positively. Awesome. Thanks again so much, Kyle. So rhinocameragear.com is the, the site. Uh, how can they uh, make sure they, how can listeners make sure they stay up to date for any of your other Kickstarter campaigns that are coming out? Is there like a mailing list that that's on the site or? Yep. Yep. So there's a, there's a, yep. There's a mailing list on the site or just follow us on Facebook. We, we tease all the new products and, uh, Facebook, you'll get to see the kind of the day-to-day of Rhino and, and what we're up to. Awesome. Thanks so much, Kyle. All right. Thanks for having me, Felix. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com for a free 14-day trial.